Our scripture today from the New Testament is from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Our other scripture today is from Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom, and it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give away. Say to those with filthful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And though the Lord has, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, by the looks of the Advent wreath and the fact that the pink candle is lit, that, shares, that shows us that we are at the third Sunday of Advent. And it means that Christmas is getting closer. Yes, Christmas is coming. And I've got good news for you. It may not be the news that you're expecting me to say, but it may be the news that some of you need to hear. 
it's okay to not be okay at Christmas. It's okay to not be okay at Christmas. The month of December is not immune from human suffering and sorrow. And some find that the fact that it is the holiday season and there may be expectations of feeling a certain way makes it all that much more difficult, especially when thinking about the people that we might be longing to celebrate with, who we aren't able to be with. Maybe they have passed away recently or even long ago in the past, and yet we still miss them. It could be that we find ourselves in a place of loss. For some of us, all of us at times, the holiday cheer that we hear of can be hard to imagine. Which is why today's theme of joy is particularly interesting. The third Sunday of Advent is traditionally known as Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete, the Latin, the first word in Latin in the Roman Catholic Mass, which starts out from a verse that comes from Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice is the word of the day. And the pink candle is meant to interrupt our our Advent observance with a reminder of joy. The reason that joy belongs in Advent is because, well, it appears in the prophetic lead-up to Christmas. And one of the texts that leads up to the birth of Jesus as the Messiah is Isaiah chapter 35, our text today. It describes the joy that is to come for God's people when they are returned from exile. God's people who hear this from Isaiah and all those who will hear this have been through the ringer, and that's putting it mildly. Joy isn't something that they possess It's not something that they are reminded to conjure up from their own powers of positive thinking. Joy is something they long for because they're not living with it. It's precisely an important note in Isaiah's prophecy because there isn't much cause for rejoicing. Not much cause for rejoicing until, that is, news of God's deliverance is shared. And Isaiah is given that sacred task of sharing with God's people who have suffered through the exile that there will be a day of rejoicing. Joy enters the scene with the announcement of God's salvation. It's not the celebration of joy that we already have, but the anticipation of joy that God brings us even in the most unlikely of places. 
The joy of Advent is always at least anticipatory joy, imagined joy, or rather joy that we hope for and wait for even when it's hard to imagine. And that's good news. Because as you and I both know, life is not all ups and highs. It also includes the lows and the downs. Highs and lows, ups and downs, heights and depths. Speaking of heights and depths, we're talking here about elevation, aren't we? You know, differences in elevation are very important to understanding what Isaiah is saying here in this text. It's important to understand Isaiah's image of joyful transformation in Isaiah 35 because he's referring to two completely different climates that exist at radically different elevations on this planet. And yet, these radically different ecological realities can exist in remarkable, close relationship with each other. Take North America, for instance. Did you know that the highest point in the contiguous United States and the lowest point in the contiguous United States are separated by all of 84 miles as the crow flies? That's true. Mount Whitney, 14 and a half thousand feet, and I regret to say, as a native Washingtonian, that I don't know where they got this idea that Mount Whitney was higher than Mount Rainier, but beats Mount Rainier by like less than a hundred feet. So I'm gonna say, it isn't the, come on, come on, that's a tie, isn't it? Anyway, in forced to say he's native to Southern California, so. Uh, so yeah, Mount Whitney, in the southern Sierra Nevada range, reaches nearly 14,500 feet, and it stands adjacent to Death Valley, and Badwater Basin in Death Valley is the lowest place in the United States, close to 300 feet below sea level. That's quite a contrast. It's really interesting, as I was looking online, uh, researching this, I uh, saw some, some uh, really cool blogs from hikers who not only want to, hikers and climbers who want to climb Mount Whitney, but who also want to do it in the same day that they go to Badwater Basin, so they can say that they've been to the lowest point and the highest point in the same day. Now, uh, one of them admitted that, that uh, he tried it, but he didn't condition himself for the heights of elevation and uh, had to try on another time. Well, the reason why I bring this up, you're saying, how come you're talking about that, Kurt? You know, Mount Whitney, Death Valley? Well, because the geology of the Holy Land is remarkably similar. It, too, boasts a place, a low place, that is associated with the word death. That's the Dead Sea. Not simply the lowest place in that region, but, in fact, the lowest place on the planet Earth. 1,400 feet below sea level is the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, and some of you have traveled there, the Dead Sea 
if you look upon it from, from the, the hills and the mountains above, which is where Jerusalem sits, if you look across that into the southeast, you see beyond the Dead Sea into lifeless expanse of desert. Okay, keep that picture in mind. But if you travel a mere 100 miles to the northwest of the Dead Sea, you will find yourself in the midst of the foothills of a Mediterranean coastal mountain range with peaks that in southern Lebanon reach above 10,000 feet. And in fact, you will, on your way there, you will see the massive cedar trees for which Lebanon is famous. And you will pass Mount Carmel and the fertile coastal plain of Sharon, which is abundant in plant life. Now that's quite a contrast. Looking to the southeast of Jerusalem is all desert, no life. The Dead Sea truly is the Dead Sea. And yet to the northwest, luxuriant vegetation. This contrast between an area so close that is hostile to life and an area that is so close that is teeming with life. Isaiah has the audacity to prophesy that the joy that God is bringing is like the lifeless desert to the southeast bursting forth in flourishing flora just like it is to the northwest. Imagine that. Isaiah's prophecy speaks to people in exile. People who are experiencing desolation. These are not good times. These are people who are grieving multiple losses. The loss of their home. Forced out. But it's the loss of their home in the midst of war. And not just war, in the midst of an invasion. Forcibly taken from them. Massive, probably, carnage and loss of life around them. So those who did survive to go in the exile are grieving. They're grieving the loss of their home. They're grieving the loss of loved ones. They're grieving the loss of the temple that has been destroyed. They are moved across that vast, inhospitable desert to Babylon. And it's in that direction from Jerusalem that you look when you think about the people who have been taken away. And it's across that vast response going the other way when uh, exiles like Daniel, who opened his, the, door, the, the window shade to open his window toward Jerusalem, to be reminded of those days and God's presence. The text from Isaiah relates these conditions that God's people are experiencing with images from creation. So we have a slide here to show you just in a snapshot the desert and the parched land of creation, this, this desolation that we have. The wilderness 
the burning sand, the thirsty ground, the ground that does not have any water. The life that is there is life that threatens life. Jackals enjoy that territory. They'll also encounter lions and other ravenous beasts, the text says. And in the midst of this creative scene that doesn't, isn't a far stretch to imagine because we've seen it to the southeast is the human condition that is related to this inhospitable scene. Isaiah speaks of feeble hands and weak knees. Not a picture of strength. A picture of injury. A picture of carrying with you with every step the injuries that have come to you on your journey. The continued mounting of burdens that has sapped the strength of God's people. It includes fearful hearts. Isaiah speaks to fearful hearts, hearts that have much to fear. They've been in fear. It's rational fear. Most of their lives have been taken from them. Isaiah recounts a series of what we would call disabilities. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. Think of the suffering, the challenge that comes with those conditions. And at the very end of the text, we see these words that, that sum it all up, that from an emotional standpoint, an experiential standpoint, this is what God's people have been experiencing Sorrow and sighing. Wondering, how long, O oh Lord? Asking, why, God, did this happen? Can you relate? When you look across the landscape of your life, are there desolations that you see in your view? Have you experienced loss? Do you carry the, the burden of that loss close to your heart this Christmas season? The feeling of grief, the feeling of, of sadness that comes with that grief. It might be that you're suffering through a very difficult time. It could be a challenging uh, moment in a close relationship that you have. It could be that you're suffering physically. You've You've recently suffered something and you're still dealing with it. You're not fully recovered. You're maybe wondering when you will recover. If we had the opportunity to, and, and the boldness to, to share with each other what our lives were like and we invited the whole community around us and in fact, even beyond our community, the whole world to share what life is like for us right now, we would hear a testimony, yes, of joy and relationship, but we'd also hear a lot about sorrow and sighing. And what can make it so difficult is that these griefs, these 
challenges that we face oftentimes do not come one at a time. As if it's a wrestling match where those difficult things have to tag the one that's beating us up inside the ring before they enter the ring. That rule doesn't seem to apply at times, does it? One thing can be added on top of another, on top of another, top of another. I'll give you just a snapshot from my life. Um, this, this doesn't happen all the time, but ju- just with, some of you are aware that I had COVID a few weeks ago. So, okay, so I get COVID. I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm mostly just upset that my wife, Crystal, won the contest of who goes the longest without getting COVID. That, that's, the thing that's, that's the thing that's mostly bothering me. Um, but I'm also, you know, some of you have been there, you know, I'm kind of in a, in a fog. Uh, but during, within uh, the first few days of me getting COVID, I get a call from, uh, I get two calls from two different relatives. And then Crystal gets a call from her relative. And this is what those calls are about. One close relative has just been diagnosed with cancer. One close relative has died. And one close relative has had the house that they built by hand burned to the ground. Here's the thing. I share that today just as a way of opening up the door that all of us have things like that come across our path. This is not exceptional. In large measure, this is life. It's the life that Jesus, God's promised Messiah, enters into. And as we look to Jesus through the Holy Spirit in our lives, these are the lives that God brings joy into. And so, joy can be surprising in situations like this. Isaiah announces good news to the exiles. They hadn't heard good news in a long time. Even in the midst of all the sorrow and the sighing, the move that's happening is that God is on the move. God recognizes what God's people are going through and is coming to save them. The people will be surprised by joy in this most unlikely of places. God's salvation meets them right where they are and applies life to the places that seem more like death. So let's return to our text. Imagining joy with Isaiah. How does Isaiah imagine this? Well, Isaiah gives God's people a vision of desolation transformed. Something that they could hardly even imagine would be a possibility. The desert and the parched land, the wilderness, that was this scene of inhospitably difficult life, sees flowers burst into bloom. Crocuses, no less. If you look up online pictures of crocuses, you'll see uh, 
so many photographers who have put their beautiful pictures online of just massive fields of crocuses just taking over the world. So you really kind of have to take a blanket of flowers and just roll it right over that desert landscape, all those sands, to get the picture of what Isaiah is talking about. Burning sand and thirsty ground, well, in this very place, water gushes forth. It bubbles up from the earth. It, there's so much abundance that it pools. And the haunt of jackals, lions, and ravenous beasts, well, that becomes a place that grows plants, grass, reeds, papyrus. And the connection to the human condition here, to the feeble hands and the weak knees, the prophecy is of steadying strength. Exactly what God's people need for the next step of the journey. To the fearful hearts that are receiving this message comes the message, do not fear. God will save you. And because God in Jesus Christ comes into enemy territory, I heard a preacher say once, and this is a good reminder. And the exiles weren't on a vacation. They were taken there forcibly. So there's a power on earth that needs to be confronted and God's power to save is a power to confront the powers that be. The blind, the deaf, the lame, and the mute, the mention of them opens up to people who were blind now with eyes opened, the deaf with ears that can hear, people leaping and shouting for joy when they couldn't do either before. Because sorrow and sighing is now Filled with gladness and joy. And so, as God's people, us now, but also God's people through the ages, through the centuries, who have read Isaiah 35, have considered what this bursting into bloom would mean for you and for me. What might it mean to know that the one who came to us in Jesus Christ, who is present with us by the Holy Spirit, is offering us strength in the face of our very weakness, providing exactly what we need to wake up in the morning, to live this day, to live tomorrow. That this God in Christ would give us courage. Courage enough to face our fears. Yes, more than just what we have within us. But a strength and a courage that come from beyond. We have a long for recovery, a desire for reversal of fortunes. There is joy, joy that is available in Christ due to God's intervention and our experience of abundant life. I've heard many people say when they go through difficult times, and I think it's, it's rather true. Sometimes it can sound trite, but if you really dig into it, there's, it's very profound, and that is 
Christians, believers, those who have experienced the first fruits of God's being with us in the Savior, Jesus Christ, they say, I don't know if I could have gone through this without my faith. I can't do this without Jesus. This is the joy in the midst of the sorrow that is being promised to God's people by Isaiah. It's the first taste of that. But there's also joy in the waiting because we know all is not yet made right. As we start moving toward Christmas in our Advent journey, uh, it is a tradition, and I think it's appropriate, that we start to really focus on Jesus' arrival, which is this celebration of Christmas. And, and so the season of Advent is, is meant for us in the church life, not just to focus on Jesus' first coming, but also to be reminded that we also, like the people then, look forward to Jesus' coming, and his coming is a second coming. One of my professors at Whitworth College wrote a book uh, called The Philosophy of the Second Advent, and that was his study of the end times and Jesus' return. And yes, indeed, it is a second advent. It is when all of these prophecies from Isaiah are realized in full. And that's still a part of our journey in the Christian life. To experience the joy that Christ brings, even in the most unlikely of places. But to recognize that there will come a day when there will be no sorrow or sighing. When God wipes away every tear, and those words are used in the final scene in the book of Revelation. God holds the future. And the one who has come to save us will bring about full salvation. Now and in our future and even into eternity. And so our final word is a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement along the journey, and that is to wait patiently because God is coming to save us. In the New Testament book of James, James looks back at the Old Testament prophets and says, you know, we can benefit by looking back at these prophets and, and seeing the faith that they had, even at the darkest days of our family story. Listen to these words again from James. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient. Stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Wait patiently. The Lord is coming soon. This is always the message of the Christian life. He will come and save you. The desert desolation you suffer will be transformed into abundant life. And joy will be restored. Imagine that. <laughs>